Blog Talk Radio. It's Ramon. Hi, Ramon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon to you as well. Well, as you know, I have been looking forward to this chat for several days here. I received your book uh, yesterday, by the way, the hard, actual hardcover. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so, okay, um, let's just jump right in here. Um, the full title of your book is The Fame Game, an Insider's Playbook for Earning Your 15 Minutes. And I like that 15 minutes part there uh, on the end there. But for the, for the sake of the interview, we'll just call it The Fame Game, if that's okay with you. Oh, uh, that's fine. Okay. Now, um, you are, as we the world knows, you are the founder of your own management and PR firm that you have just done just amazing work for nearly 40 years managing and doing the major PR campaigns for, for A-list celebrities around the world. Uh, one of the things I thought was also so cool about you before you got into the entertainment business that you were a flight attendant for Pan Am and you once owned a 65 Dodge that didn't go in reverse. That was so cute and funny. <laughs> yeah, those were uh, two uh, different times in my life, actually. The first, um, I, I was a flight attendant for Pan Am uh, back in the early 70s, mid-70s, and it was one of the first black uh, male uh, flight attendants that Pan Am uh, hired uh, for many years. Uh, they didn't have blacks and they didn't have men. Uh, a lot of European airlines did have men, but uh, they pretty much started hiring blacks and a few men at the same time. So I killed two birds with one stone. And yeah. I was based in London, England. And while I was in London, England, that's where I first uh, got uh, involved in, in the entertainment industry. Well, you know, not only were you a manager and, well, before you became a manager, uh, a top PR person, director, all of that, you were the, I would call it, you were the Olivia Pope before there was an Olivia Pope because you were so such an expert at handling crisis management for these uh, celebrities. Do you think, am I on to something with that or what? Well, I started off in the business and the uh, PR side of things. Um, uh, that Andrea Pope and the scandal. That that that's really that's television, and it's not really representative of real, even real PR in the entertainment business. I mean, she was involved in. Yeah, I, mean, I, I thought it was a it was a cool show, but it's not very realistic. That's not what my, me and my peers <laughs> do on an everyday basis. But I think what you learn, um, you know, when you work. The more famous the clients are, then the more uh, the higher level uh, of upheaval comes with a crisis and, and the management of it, and that's more change with the impact of social media because social media is more visceral reaction. You know, people now can react from seeing something happen um, within a matter of seconds, like what happened with Will Smith. Uh, during my early days of PR, that could not, never have happened. Um, the likelihood of that happening and spreading to, so quickly would not have happened without social media, even though he picked, um, you know, the Academy Awards show is one of the more, it's had pretty good ratings for many, many years. So when you're on the biggest show, one of the biggest shows on television, and you have social media uh, escalating the crisis, uh, in a matter of seconds, that's very difficult to, you know, to manage and to, quote-unquote, we're often called spin doctors, um, but it's very hard to spin something in, these, in the paradigm of today where social media, again, has people have access to the story so quickly, and it's, once they see it, then it's, it, it's hard to change their minds have, about what they saw. Have you been uh, asked, over the, I would say within recent years now that in this era of social media, have you been asked to come in and play spin doctor for certain scandals and conflicts with a lot of celebrities and you turned them down or what? Um, occasionally it has happened. I really don't do PR anymore and haven't for probably 20 years. You know, I started the first leg of my uh, first decade or so of my career. I, you know, I worked for a big PR company called Rogers and Cowan. Uh, which was one of the first uh, 
which was the first major independent PR company in Hollywood. Um, before that, uh, the studios controlled all, were pretty much controlled all, everything. They managed the stars, they represented them as agents, as, as publicists, uh, every, they controlled everything. So they were more treated as employees. And PR really didn't start until uh, they weren't allowed to hire outside people. So I worked at that firm, um, and then, you know, after doing that for a dozen years or so and having my own company, that's when I transitioned into management, and I've been doing management and brand consultancy for the last, you know, two decades. But a couple times over the years, I have had an opportunity, you know, people have called me um, to ask me my opinions on how they should handle a particular crisis. Um, and, you know, my key to uh, something that I learned and that I feel is the strongest about managing a crisis is to be aware and out in front of it before you respond so you know everything uh, that you're responding to. And I think that that's a lesson that a lot of people don't take because you can have a knee-jerk reaction. And also, if you're lying, um, it causes uh, – It's. I always think that one lie – is, is followed by more lies. So knowing what the crisis is uh, involves, um, how what the collateral damage is, and uh, being able to tell the truth are are things that I think are really important in any kind of crisis management. One of the people that you once managed was one of my all-time favorites performers, Little Richard. Uh, I, I really love that. You share in the book, again, the book is The Fame Game, uh, you share an incident uh, when Richard was a part of, on the cast members of Down and Out in Beverly Hills, um, starring Richard Dreyfuss and uh, Bette Midler and such. I, I just love the, the ending of how this, this was a conflict. Uh, I'll sum it up. Richard, in the middle of filming, suddenly informed you that he can't film past 8 p.m. because of religious beliefs and reasons, and how the director of the film handled the situation. I just love that. Can you just pick up and tell us how that ended? Well, it was a situation where, um, you know, I got to this, uh, we were shooting on location in Los Angeles and Beverly Hills, and um, Richard, uh, it was his first day of shooting. Um, he had never worked on a film that I was aware of in an acting role. Um, where he actually got to play a character. But Paul Mazursky, who was the writer, producer, director of it, um, uh, producer, director of it, he was a huge fan of Little Richard and really wanted him in the film. Because I told him, look, I don't even know if he can really act. Um, but if you're willing to give him a shot, you know, we can try to uh, put him with an acting coach, whatever. And he says, don't worry about it, Ramon, we'll make it work. So on that first day of shooting, we're sitting in a trailer, and I said, well, Richard, you know, you're probably not going to shoot till about, start shooting till about 8 p.m. This was maybe maybe four hours or five hours ahead of time. And he said, oh, oh I can't I can't shoot uh, past five, past sundown, because he was a Seventh-day Adventist, and it was a Sabbath. Uh, and I just said, wow, you got to, you know, you, you never told me this, and we have a contract and whatever, but we can't get out of doing this. They can't move this whole shoot day just to accommodate you. That's not going to happen. So Paul Mazursky came in, who's Jewish, and he uh, commensurated with Richard in a way in which he, he brought Richard to tears, basically. And he was just, he said, you know, if I were, I know, you know, you have strong religious, probably stronger religious convictions than I have, but I think if God was here right now, I think he would tell you that it's okay for you to follow through on your commitment. And I think that he would forgive you. And he had Richard, like, eating out of the palm of his hand. And Richard, you know, but he started, had tears in his eyes. And then he finally just agreed to um, to do the shoot. And uh, it was just, a, you know, sometimes, like, you can, you can exasperate a problem and make it even worse um, by fueling it instead of trying to be... Uh, to solve a, a problem, what's the fastest way to solve a problem, which is the approach that I always take, and that's why, to me, I couldn't solve that problem alone, and I needed to get the director to um, 
step in and see if there was a way that he could, you know, massage and get Richard to do uh, what he had signed on to do. And uh, it ended up being a funny night all the way around, but a good night. And, and Richard, you know, got through it. And uh, yeah, it was a great, it was a, it was a very memorable evening. I think I would have taken Paul to a big steak dinner after that. That was just beautifully done. Yes, he was uh, he was magical, and, uh, and he was a very good person. To, you know, he he was so good because all the people in that movie, in fact, the, all the leads in that movie were clients of mine, were former PR clients. At the time that I did that film, I was managing Little Richard. But before that, I... While I was at that company, I mentioned to you earlier, Rogers and Cowan, I represented Bethesda, I represented the Knopi, and I represented um, Richard Dreyfus, and they were all on doing comebacks, and Richard was more or less attempting a comeback. So the fact that he was able to pull all these people together at pretty much down times in their career uh, was was a, was a, was pretty amazing that he was able to pull that off with everybody. Not just Little Richard, but all you know the other the, the actors too, because it really it rejuvenated all of their careers. The okay. success of that film not only rejuvenated, helped to rejuvenate what I was trying to do with Little Richard, but it literally re, rejuvenated all three of those those actors' careers simultaneously as well. Yeah, it definitely did. In fact, after I read that chapter, I wanted to go and find uh, the movie and just watch it all over again. It's such a such a, a great scene, great moment there. Well, I want to step back in time again at, with you as a publicist. It's, it's 1978. Jet Magazine has this split cover shot of the Bee Gees and the OJs on the cover with the headline, White Stars crossover and get rich on black music and at the time of course the bgs are the hottest thing in music disco is just blazing around the world and 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 the bgs are your clients so you see this what do you do on that day well they they weren't they were my client i did day-to-day work on them i didn't sign them to rogers they were a rogers and Con client and my boss came to me because I was the only, because I was working actively on the Bee Gees, but also because I was the only black um, executive at the firm at that time. And the Bee Gees, when they found out, uh, they saw they saw it before I saw it. I didn't see it until my boss brought it to my attention. And he said, have you seen this? And I said, no. And he goes, well, the Bee Gees are infuriated and they want to do something about it, and they're asking me to, they want to get your advice on what they should do. And so I put together uh, three different scenarios on how we should deal with that. And, and the first one was really just to ignore it, because Jet, um, to their audience, I didn't think that a lot of people were really familiar with Jet magazine. I mean, they were a big pop artist. They were the number one pop artist in the world at that time. So I didn't think that most of the people that they would be most concerned about, uh, but the, the idea that they were pilfering or stealing music, uh, that really rubbed them the wrong way. So I suggested we could, you know, bypass it uh, completely. We could, I could try to get a retraction in Jet, um, or they could send a letter to Jet. And we could do something, a letter to the editor, but I don't know if you remember Jet, but Jet was not big on retraction. No. And if they they did one at at all, it would be probably two or three sentences at the most. And it was buried. It's not like if you sent a letter to the editor to the New York Times or the LA Times or a bigger newspaper. And then the third one is to do something more on a philanthropic level just to show that they were socially conscious about the fact that this was um, uh, bigger than just them or the story was really about the fact that this, it, it, it took advantage of the, of the Bee Gees um, in a way they weren't, they were caught off guard. They We didn't participate in this article and they were trying to sell magazines. The fact that the reality is that black music has been a trendsetter back since the 50s when Elvis Presley and and rock and roll started, and, you know, people like Little Richard, their songs were completely ripped off and just done by white artists. 
In this case, this was a movement of music where it did incorporate some black elements, but it wasn't as cut and dry as the Bee Gees doing. They weren't trying to do the OJs. You know, they were they were part of a movement, as you noticed. Uh, and there were a lot of black artists who were also engaged and uh, were thriving in the disco business, uh, the music. Uh, not the, not per se the OJs, but they picked them as an example. Um, so, you know, my plan was to try to hook them up with the uh, socially conscious organization where they could do something on a higher level uh, just to show that they were, you know, uh, they were appreciative of the black community who invested in and did support their music. And so I tried to hook them up with Coretta Scott King and the uh, Martin Luther King Center for Social Change, which was being built in Atlanta at the time after Martin, Martin Luther King had passed. And uh, we did have an, an understanding uh, what we were going to do. And I had suggested, you know, they, they give them, donate the benefits, uh, ticket sales from one concert that was going to happen in, in at the Omni Center in Atlanta. And that was what we had agreed to on paper, but as you find out in the book, it didn't materialize in a way that I had envisioned it. So um, it did, we did end up, um, the DJs did end up making a donation to them, um, but it didn't cause, you know, to me, hooking the DJs up with Coretta Scott King, who was the leading civil rights, you know, probably the most prominent civil rights leader at that time. The two number I thought would have been historical, but it never ended up being historical. Yeah, and people will have to get the book to find out all of the other tidbits and details as to how it, how it I mean, it ended nicely, but it was some things, well, they'll just have to read it and see. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, that's a nice way to put it. It was nice, you know, mm-hmm. nobody got the... But it was, it was, uh, it could have been handled differently. Yeah, much so. Well, just for, well, of course, you know, with the mention, you know, about, um, crossover music and artists and such, is black, black fame versus white fame, is it, in this era, is it still important that black celebrities cross over to non-black audiences or does it matter now? No, no, it matters as much now or more than ever before um, because again of the impact of social media and everything that you uh, it's still not um, and I would say that any minorities that are you know trying to be successful and you know that's the one thing that I like to establish about the book <clears throat> and about the 15 minutes is the reality is that I don't believe that fame is a destination it's it's an accolade and it's a reward for basically being successful. And a lot of what I talk about in the book in terms of your securing your 15 minutes is really about being successful at something. And the more minutes that you acquire, then the more opportunities you get, the more money you can earn. And that's how that 15 minutes comes up. It, I didn't come up with 15 minutes. It's a famous um, phrase that was coined by, or partially coined by Andy Warhol in the late 60s. I, I just have always used it as a mantra, as a uh, what what does that mean in terms of an industry or in terms of a career, uh, since it's, it's been used usually in, in in relationship to entertainers more probably than anything else. Um, but I think the reality is, is yeah, there are two types of fame. There's black fame. That means your community likes you and loves you. But if nobody in the white community uh, knows about you, then you're not as famous as your white counterparts. And that's, uh, that's been, a, again, a, a key heel for black entertainers for many, many years. One, in terms of getting exposed on television, in terms of getting ex- exposed on radio, because most black radio stations don't have the bandwidth and the reach that the major pop stations have. Uh, black, the few black uh, TV shows that have been based around black entertainers don't have the same, don't, haven't secured the same amount of ratings, regular ratings. So the bigger shows like from Ed Sullivan to Johnny Carson, um, to Oprah Winfrey, you know, the bigger the shows are with the, with the bigger white audiences, they enable a star to, you know, get mainstream appeal. And all those things are still happening. And even in social media, um, the majority of the most famous people on social media are not people that are 
come from our new social media, you know, um, sensations. There, it's the, the formats or all of the platforms are driven by stars who are already famous and who help to grow those platforms. So if you're not famous already before you're on social media, then the impact that social media can have on your career will be, you know, marginalized. So again, blacks um, are constantly struggling, struggling for, you know, equal footing, um, not only in our society and our culture, but definitely in the entertainment industry and pretty much all other industries as well. Oh, definitely. So, and of course, when you're talking about Black fame versus white fame, it all boils down to dollars and cents, definitely so, which is where it counts the most. Yeah, fame is a, is a currency. You know, mm-hmm. ultimately it does become a currency if you know how to use it. Uh, it can become a liability as well, but it can also be, if it's used wisely and you you have a great team uh, behind you, uh, I think that you can sustain a career over a longer period of time than, you know, say for someone that has two minutes of fame, they're not, you know, no one's going to even notice them. You know, they may have five minutes, maybe they, maybe they they can work. If they have ten minutes, they, they're, they might attain a level of popularity, but they're still not getting the bigger deals. You know, they're not getting the bigger opportunities where their brand identity would be stronger and more mainstream. But when you get 15 minutes, then you can have sustainability if you know how to manage it with the understanding that fame is fleeting anyways. And so your currency as it relates to fame is, is, is not going to stay consistent. And when you go through lulls or failures, your bottom line can be affected by that. And, I, you know, all the people that I chronicle in the book and every major client that I've worked in, uh, they all have uh, worked with, represented, they've all taken a different path. And they've all had to incur and get over lulls in their career. It's just, uh, it's nobody, I've never been associated with anybody who's maintained the same level of fame through the total, you know, span of their career. As a manager, is it more challenging to build a client's career and say, you know, they're new, maybe they got one, currently a hit record or hit movie or whatever, or is it more of a challenge to rebuild a client's career who was once established and you've done both? So which one is the most challenging for you that you think? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I'd like to say that the most probably it's more challenging to resurrect a career um, because at that point you're dealing with a personality that maybe doesn't want to make the sacrifices or make the adjustments in their style, their approach to the business that require them to be viewed in a different light. When you're working with a new artist, you do have the benefit of a little bit of naivety and and just a lot of passion and a lot of hard work, and they're willing to invest more so than uh, an older star who is pretty much set in their ways and they're disgruntled about the fact that they're, they, they're not getting the same amount of attention that they once got. So it really depends on the, in each case it depends on the artist, but I do think in my uh, experience in trying to resurrect or uh, revive careers, the biggest challenge is getting the, the, those artists to understand where they really lie in terms of relevancy, because if they can't accept how far down they've gone, then they can't get back up. And I know that can be a challenge with some of these celebrities, uh, more established ones, and their egos, so I know that's not always Yeah, it's, a, it's an ego-driven business. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's what have you done for me lately, and mm-hmm. as you get older, you know, when you're being, when you, say, for example, if you had a great run and you've had maybe two decades of fame and success, um, and all of a sudden you're, you know, there's a saying in, the, in our businesses, you can't get arrested. Uh, that's when it's, 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 a, it's a lot for someone to, you know, hit that wall and realize that they're not relevant anymore and then try to figure out what 
Uh, and I think social media makes that even harder because some of them don't understand it. They don't want to be bothered with it. And um, it's, it's, it's added another weight on their back, you know, of, okay, so now I have to try to be relevant. And on top of that, I have to try to be relevant on social media. So it, it's a double, double wing. Well, I have two last questions here. As we all know, uh, we are in an era where a lot of famous celebrities or household name celebrities, uh, their spouses have been their managers from Wendy Williams, Kelly Clarkson, Mira J, Reba, so many. And you've, again, you've been in that position as well where the spouse has also been the manager of these entertainers. Do you think that's a good idea sometimes or where do you stand on that? Um, where do I stand on that? Um, I sit on that. Uh, what I, from my personal experience, one is, uh, it wasn't something that I wanted to do, first of all, um, because I worked with, uh, you know, I had been asked to work with different artists, um, who did have, uh, parents who managed them, and they wanted me to get involved as a co-manager. Uh, Brandy, Usher, um, Monica, I mean, several different artists that, and I was against, you know, uh, doing that. And the biggest reason I think why I think it is, a, it can be problematic. Usually this is, these are parents who don't have professional experience and they, they get involved with their um, kids when they're uh, possibly underage. Uh, Pink was another one who I was asked to uh, work with as well. Um, but what happens is that, you know, I think that there has to be a distinction between a manager and an artist at all times that the career, it's not a dual career. You know, in my case with Vanessa Williams, I told her, you look, this is not my career. This is your career. I have my own career. And so, in my case, I did come to the table with, you know, some professional ac acumen and, and expertise that I could bring to the table to help her. Uh, a lot of the people that you named, they didn't have that. And so I think you become a liability to your spouse or your child or whatever when you're making decisions, ill-informed decisions that um, that could hurt their career or or could prevent them from growing um, and developing as artists. And so I think it's something that you really, I think unless you have the professional skills um, and you have some training that you shouldn't do it. You should get someone that, you know, get the best people, surround your loved ones with the people that you trust and who you believe can do the best for them. Now, there are cases where, you know, I think Taylor Swift, I think she has a mother involved in her business, and she's, you know, they have a very successful business together. So it is something that I, um, I was successful at it for the time that I did it, um, but it's not something that I think um, can always work out for the best. And to further speak of uh, the era when you managed Vanessa, I was – very surprised to see where initially, as you write, that she asked, initially asked you to be a manager, but you had this long list as to why you didn't want to do it. That was kind of surprising. Yeah, well, that, you know, I just kind of went over why, yeah. because I had been in so many, I've seen so many of those cases, and I didn't want to be uh, grouped in that way of being a spouse's manager. I just didn't, it wasn't something that I thought I needed to do for my career at that point. And, you know, to me, there were, you know, I was on a different path and, uh, you know, I wanted to, uh, I was in the process of transitioning into management. So it wasn't that I didn't think I could be a capable manager, but I didn't want that um, tag on being a spouse's manager, you know. Um, but ultimately, I did try to help her get management and we got turned down uh, a bunch of times and she finally just said, you know, why don't you do it? And uh, it was at the request that I finally gave in and said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. You once also managed uh, Babyface and 
again, this is this is a chapter people need to go get the book and read all of the details. But this kind of I don't know why reading about this incident with the 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 hit single girlfriend, babyface, Pebbles, Vanessa Williams, that left me ticked off for some reason how that all went down with that particular song. And people, again, go get the book and you'll see what I'm talking about. So, you know, how did, did that leave, how did that, how did you end up, end up feeling about that when it was all said and done? Well, when it's all said and done, you know, you, you really have to, you know, you can't hold a, I, I personally don't feel it's healthy to hold grudges in our business. And I think you have to really look, uh, at a situation, a scenario with with open eyes and and and, and an understanding, that situation was out of our control because those two guys, L.A. Reid and, and Kenny Babyface Edmonds, were just at the you know they were just starting off their career as songwriter producers. Vanessa uh, had done a demo song, that song "Girlfriends." She was in the process of demo, demoing that song. Uh, they submitted it. We wanted them to write several songs for Vanessa's first album, and uh, but they wanted to play us a few songs that were available, and we didn't really like any of them, but we did like that song. So that was uh, that's how, um, and we did that song on spec. So when you do a song on spec, there are no rights. In other words, we didn't have uh, a contract that. Where and they weren't getting paid to work with Vanessa on the song, so we had no rights to that song. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. Um, and what happened was Pebbles heard the same song while they were working on it, while Vanessa had demoed it and had a scratch vocal, lead vocal on the track. And then um, after Pebbles heard it, she told her husband and MCA Records. And they found out that the song was available, per se. Um, and they offered Kenny and L.A. a, a nice uh, fee to produce the record for Bell. And uh, so we lost the song, but we didn't have any rights to the song. That's the part that some people don't realize. In addition, um, we the label was going to delay the record because Vanessa was pregnant. And... Um, because of that, those guys said, well, you know, we're getting paid. If we give it to Vanessa, the record's not going to come out for a while, and we need the money now. And so that's how it ended up happening. But where it got messy for me uh, was the fact that they never told us. In other words, this all came out through the grapevine. They stopped calling us, both of them. I couldn't reach them on the phone or anything. And uh, so that was kind of messy, but... Uh, as it turned out, you know, a few years later after, you know, I never held it against him per se. I just said, you know, yes, that was unprofessional. All you had to do was call. Mm -hmm. You say, hey, we have a great opportunity here. I would have said, hey, I understand it. You know, because, again, we didn't have a signed contract. <laughs> so uh, if you don't have a signed contract, you know, it's open, to, you know, open territory. Yeah, I, I, I think that's the part that rubbed me the wrong way about they didn't call you guys to let you know what had happened, the offer. Yeah, and that happens, you know, that happens in a lot of businesses where people don't take the time. You know, if someone passes on something, you know, it takes two seconds to say, hey, you know, thanks for submitting, but um, I'm not interested. Yeah. Our business is, is notorious for that, you know, not just for that kind of scenario, but I can I could give you hundreds of scenarios where, a five-second email or call could have cleared the air, and instead people just choose not to do it. I don't know why, but it's it's, it's definitely something that's uh, prevalent in our industry. So that, they're not the first people to do something like that, but that one, because it, the song did end up becoming a hit, and because Pebbles ended up being with L.A., it got a lot of mileage. <laughs> a lot. I even remember hearing little tidbits about uh, some of what you mentioned in the book, but you thoroughly spread it out and told all the details. And so I think that's probably why I was like, oh, yeah, I remember hearing some of this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, was, it was a big deal at the it time. It was. 
you know, and, and we, you know, we, we just didn't comment on it because we didn't want to fuel it and make it any bigger than it needed to be. And like I said, it was out of our control. I mean, you know, there, there was, um, there was only so much that we could do once they made that decision. There was nothing we could do actually once they made that decision. So, you know, how it goes. Well, yeah, we didn't have any legal grounds. So. Well, at the end, uh, you write uh, the tenants of fame. You list 13 of them. And again, people go get the book, The Fame Game, and you will see. And they did some very wise, I call them tips of uh, information. I strongly suggest, Ramon, that anyone who is thinking that they want to enter the entertainment industry, maybe they're just getting started in entertainment, or maybe they're up to their neck in it. This is just a really good book to read. I, I strongly suggest it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, it's really, I try to make it as a hybrid. So it's really, mm -hmm. I, I, I like to think of it on three levels. One, it's my story. It's a professional story. Um, I call it a promar because it's not really a memoir. It's really about my professional life. And, you know, just a struggle of uh, being a black man in an in a entertainment industry, which, you know, there's a lot of systemic racism in entertainment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the time that I started, there was, you know, it was, it was difficult. There weren't a lot of, there wasn't another Ramon that I could, you know, go to. I had a few people that helped me out, but um, it was, uh, it was a, it was tough for a lot of blacks, my peers at that time, where we were a part of a new generation of blacks that were given, you know, access for the first time in the industry. So I, I, there's my story, and then there's the stories of all the famous people that I rep ended up representing, and their own unique stories. And one of the things I wanted people to understand is there is no recipe for how to become famous. Because I and I think in today's world, fame is overemphasized. You know, don't and I. One of my tenets is, you know, don't obsess about fame. Obsess about being the best. And I think that there's a lost value in that, and working hard, and and just trying to be successful. None of the clients, uh, the hundreds of clients that I've represented over my my career, we didn't sit around and talk about being famous. We 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 really collaborated on how can we be successful. And then the last part is, you know, just about how our attitudes towards fame have changed because of social media and just trying to get people in art so they can see that there are some, you know, things that I learned that I still think are, are applicable today and that social media is only, it's like a preteen. It's not, it's only 12 years old. You know, so we're changing and we're letting this, these platforms really dictate so much of our lives and compared to newspapers and radio that started in the late 1800s and then you have, you know, TV in the 30s and households, you know, nationwide in the 50s. And these, these have been around for, you know, centuries. Yeah. So I still think there's a lot to, there's still going to be a lot of changes and how um, social media impacts our lives. And I'm, I'm not against it, but I think that people should be a little more discerning about how they let it influence them. And so what's next for you? Is there a follow-up book to The Fame Game or a podcast uh, with more stories or just, just what's the next project for you? Um, I'm plotting that as we speak. I'm, I'm looking at to see what kind of reaction I get from the book. But the main reason I wrote the book was, yeah, I've been in the entertainment industry. I've been in the service industry for over 40 years, you know, and I thought this would be a great opportunity for me to invest in my own brand uh, instead of, you know, um, nursing and caring for everybody else and doing that for myself. So I, I'd like to write, you know, several more books and see what I can do um, to forge my own brand. I'm not looking to, you know, necessarily, I don't think I have 15 minutes of fame, um, but I, you know, I think um, I still have a lot of great years left in my life, and I just want to make the most out of it, whatever seems to. Uh, I never thought of myself as having a career, but I like to be inspired and motivated by the, whatever I do, and as long as I find those things that I, that, uh, uh, fulfill that that goal for me, then I'm, I'm I'm happy. Are you still interested in managing uh clients? 
I'm not as interested in managing clients as I used to be because, again, I've, there's not anybody I haven't managed or, or done PR for. I've been very, very blessed and lucky. Uh, and have I sat around and just said, I mean, there's a lot of younger artists that I, you know, there's some younger artists that I like, uh, like someone like an Anderson Pack. I think he's extremely talented or, or Bruno Mars and, you know, the people like that. But I'm not going to get those opportunities to manage those people at this point in my life. But I'm not, it isn't something that's, um, a priority for me. If the right situation came up, you know, but I have a couple of projects that are still entertainment based where I would be presiding over them, but not necessarily, they're more like as a producer, uh, owner kind of situation as opposed to managing um, and trying to build someone's career or, again, uh, revive it. Uh, that those aren't current priorities for me. Well, again, Ramon, thank you so much. The book, again, is The Fame Game, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes. And um, as I told you before, I read this book in less than two days. I just couldn't wait to turn the page uh, for the next one. So thank you for this book. And I look so forward if you decide to do a sequel or a follow-up to it or whatever project. Uh, I well, look forward you. to definitely so. Thank you so much for your support. And I'm really happy. You know, it's nice to hear when people say they enjoy the book. That means a lot to me. So I, I really am glad that you enjoyed it. And again, I appreciate the invitation to do your show. And, uh, and I wish you the best. Okay, thank you again, and uh, I'll, you know, continue to follow you on social media to see what's going on with you next. All right, thank you so much, Tim. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another edition of Film Festival Radio with your host, Janice Malone. Be sure to download this and other episodes at filmfestivalradio.com.